right. Y'all ready to go? So let's go ahead and get into our, our, our discussions here. I'm pulling it back up. I lost it. Where'd it go? Where'd your questions go? Let's see here. Are they here? I was looking something up real quick. Here we go. So what do you think religion is most about and why? What did we come up with? Okay, that's good. That's good. All right. Others? What were some other thoughts? We weren't sure what you meant by quotation religion. Yeah, well, um, that was part of it. As you know, probably to be abstract, I was curious to see what you made of it. Yeah. One of the comments was the relationship between the natural and the supernatural. Okay, good. Good. Pursuit of meaning. Okay, good. Good. Right. So, so we went from heaven and hell, as in what's going to happen when we die, to now what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose of life. But you also mentioned this. I love the way you started it, though. You said, the, what was that, the connection? The between the natural and supernatural. There it is. The, the relationship between the natural and the supernatural. You know, interestingly, I think that's probably as good and as broad of a de- definition as you get as you can get. I mean, that's just about perfect. Whoever came up with that, that that it is coming together with the with this idea, and we say it in many many ways. But it's this hunger. There's something about humanity that I heard somebody over here talking about the social sciences and social. I think it was you, Amy, and I think that's right. You you hear a lot of. Certainly the topics, especially in a secular, if that, I mean, it's an oxymoron to call it secular religion, but, but if they're in a more of a, you know, modernist sense, religion becomes about ethics, religion becomes about how then do we live and what's, you know, but, but at the core of it, you know, I, I was coming in here earlier, but has, have any of you heard of the concept Axis Mundi? I know I've, I've used it before in my ministry. Have you ever heard me use it or have you heard it anywhere? Alexis Maid is a uh, social anthropologist who came up with this phrase. I mean, think about peoples since the beginning of time. There has always been ziggurats. There's always been totem poles, steeples. I mean, I'm giving you some visuals, but isn't it strange that you you could go back as far as you could go back and people are trying to build things up to the heaven in a visible way? You know, pillars that are being created. Uh, the, you know, the, the, you know, you can just go on and on and on. Think about the East. Think about the West. It's everywhere. And at the heart of that is this idea of exus mundi. And let me let me read a portion. It came, I just real quickly found one in one of the papers I've written. But let me get it up here. Here we go. So uh, the axis mundi here. The result of this event is none other than construct of what a lead has defined as the axis mundi in the everyday experience of those who encounter, and I'm doing a pastoral theology here for a doctoral course, don't worry about that. And by axis mundi, we encounter something of the sacred that is presented in, with, and through, and let's forget about the office of pastor, but the uh, in this world, 
we, we, we encounter a sacred. Um, and what is a sacred? What, what, is some, what makes something sacred? Um, this kind of sacred pillar that breaks into the homogeneity of space, I'm using her language, as to symbolize an opening from heaven to earth and vice versa. And whereby there is a communication from heaven, whatever the world of the supernatural is, expressed by one or another of certain images, all of which refer to the Axis Mundi. Um, I won't go into the rest of this, but it's, it's really in search of a temple, if you want to put it in that term. It's the search for where is it, and it's, you know, in a, as a totem pole. Or, or, and she, by the way, she was, a, like I said, a social anthropologist, and she was studying these ancient civilizations in the African continent, and um, ones that had not yet encountered. And there was always this place. It could be in the center of the, uh, of the, of the community there, but there was always a place that was sacred, that to go there is to be where there is this intersection of the supernatural, the God, the, 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 the other, and the, the mundane. It, 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 it's what makes sense out of the mundane. It's what makes our life purposeful. It, it's what makes our life meaningful. But ultimately, it, you know, you could describe religion then as sort of in search of the presence of God in our lives. I mean, to make it really plain sounding. And why, why would I ask that question? You know, because as we come to this last, you know, study, um, we as Christians, of course, have a narrative, a story. The story that begins with God in the midst of them, God being separated, and the human search and journey to be restored to God in the midst of them. We start in the Edenic temple. The Eden was the axis mundi of civilization, the temple of God. We end in Eden Back at that tree of life along the river, remember, in, in Revelations, we end right back where we, we started, reunited in Eden, where God is in the midst of us. And so when we start talking about the meaning of life, the meaning of religion, you know, all, everything we're doing, sometimes I, I feel like we get, we get lost that the, that the ultimate task of the church and the ultimate task of our theology, from an anthropological point of view at least, um, we could say certainly it's to glorify God, but that's that's the aim of theology, you know. But religion is that it's that's more of a social anthropological term, and it really is the restoration of axis mundi, the restoration of bringing together what has been separated, that is God and man, or heaven and earth. So we talk about the last days. We're talking about the, the you know. What? We're gonna we are, and so you were correct. The answer of the Bible is that it ends either with a return to Eden and heaven. Eden wasn't heaven, by the way, it was it was a start to get there, but Eden becomes heaven, which is the whole earth, Axis Mundi, God in the midst of us, temple. Or for some drastically, horrifyingly, uh, the Bible tells a story of some never go back. Now, how would that change the way you think about church, your religion, your faith? How would that change you to be informed by that little, that narrative? 
What's, what's the job of the church? What's my job as a pastor or even your job as a Christian in the, in, in, as you participate in that story? What, what is it? What is religion for us? Yeah, sure. But that's not quite the narrative we're talking about. What, what, take what you just, we just talked about. What, what, it's, kind of, it's so simple, really. What, what is it? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> I know why I'm doing what I'm doing in this job. It's to get the people to heaven. Now, that, that's a really different answer than you're going to get from a lot of people and even churches and pastors. What could be the other answers if we, haven't, if we don't keep that bigger story in mind? I mean, tell me, well, actually, start off, how does that answer not satisfy you a little bit? What, what, what's the first thing that I know would come in my mind? Okay, so my goal is to get you to heaven. Now, what, what, what's missing, do you feel like? Okay, the middle. <laughs> well, you're a little disappointed because I'm getting you to something, which means you're probably wanting it to be now. You're probably wanting it to be now. This thing really feels weird. Um, you know, help me, be, help me have heaven now. But our narrative tells us that heaven is something that only God can do, ultimately. That's where it began, and we rejected that, that narrative when we tried to do it ourselves. An entire Babel is nothing more than our creating a ziggurat. It's, it's the ziggurat, man by his own and, you know, ingenuity, attempting to make for ourselves an axis mundi. The narrative of the Bible is going to tell you that axis mundi is a gift of God, something that comes by being right with God. So if that's the case, if I were really uh, long-sighted and big big thinking, then I would be willing to sacrifice all kinds of things on this earth. I would be willing to delay all kinds of gratifications, delay the gratifications of a more flourishing church outwardly, maybe, delay the gratifications of more money, delay the gratifications of more popularity. There'd be lots of things that we'd say, you know, that's really nothing compared to the great, great honor of restoring people to God where they can have, again, heaven. Getting people to heaven really is, I mean, does that sound trite to you? It shouldn't. Getting people to heaven is really an incredible goal. And I hope it's the goal of every pastor you'll ever have and every Christian that you ever know, that at the end of the day, my greatest goal in life is honestly to get you to heaven. It's not to get you into a university. It's not to get you into a good job, although I hope and pray for all of those. And certainly, and as a secondary thing, I'd be happy to do that, uh, uh, to, to, to help in doing anything I could do to bring God's word to help you flourish in this life. But at the end of the day, I know that the narrative of our Bible is that the meaning of everything we're doing is about getting people to heaven, where they are restored to that axis mundi, where, where there is the reun- reunion of the divine to the human and the, and the life that flourishes there forever and ever and ever. So that's part one. Let me, let me keep going if we could. We've we got to go. So part two is have, then, then we ask the question about heaven and hell. What do people, what was your answer there? What, what did y'all say? What, what are most people, what are people's perceptions, I think is the way I ask it. Let me get back to it. Yeah. Very, yeah. There you go. Up there. Yep. Okay, that's a very prominent one, isn't it? Okay, Rico. Looking at the 
thing. It's actually, I think it's a little bit more of getting people to have a relationship with God. Heaven is the byproduct of that. Okay. That's how we get there. That's right. Okay. What is heaven then? Heaven's heaven and hell. Good people go. Bad's where bad people go. Hell's where bad people go. All right. And that's what the common perception is, you think? Okay. Very good. Is that a right perception? Okay. Well, you're doing something. Yeah, go ahead and speak up. I don't need people. Yeah. We were just talking about it's where the common perception is. If you're good, you know, generally speaking, and you're not someone who's doing evil things, Yeah. So heaven's really for everybody that just doesn't really screw up really bad. Okay. The road is really wide, okay? Yeah. What were you going to say, Josh? Go ahead. Really? Struggling with the doctrine of hell, saying, and it was really tough for me to figure out what to say. Yeah. Saying, so what about the you know the Buddhist monk that's not really doing right. terrible wrong? You know, I said I, I from what I know Jesus is the only way. Well, I can't stand that. Right. And you know I you know I said but ultimately we believe in a good God and He will do good, but um, I can't. You know. It doesn't make any room for the reformer if you don't believe that Jesus mm-hmm. is who he said he is. Mm-hmm. Then, then what's the point of even preaching? Well, and even then, I think, yeah, we, we'll need to go back to that. Okay, make sure we cover that, that, that issue before we get out of this class today. Because yeah. that's exactly right. That's what people will perceive. I mean, I know for me, and I, it was, I had a wonderful time with the Hill Church this, uh, this week's been like a blur. When was that one? Monday night. And, um, and it was just wonderful going through a new members class with them. And... Uh, but I really made it a point to emphasize this issue of, you know, what is it that is deserving? You know, there, there's that, I was going through the, the question, you know, that justly deserving God's displeasure and wrath, that, that, that you know, that, that a question that we, we say, the vow that we take, that I'm aware of my sin, and I'm justly, that word justly, and I underline, I said, God, really? Is it fair? Is it really fair? Doesn't it seem a little overkill to you? That God would send you into everlasting hell because you lusted for somebody once or twice. How many times? Three times? Or, you know, I, I told the story of a, a, someone who came to join the church here as a young child and probably too young, evidently, and, and that's what we judged. But, you know, what, what, what did Christ die for? My sins. Good. Good answer. So can you tell me about, uh, uh, what's, what, you know, what's kind of, what kind of sin would deserve hell? Just and I wasn't looking for a theological question. I just wanted to see if it somehow got back to what. What am I looking? By the way, you theologians, what do you think I'm looking for right now? Right. And what do we call that? You got to learn to start thinking theologically here. Original sin. Thank you. Capital S sin. Good. So remember that conversation, because it seems absolutely crazy for someone to say, "Come on, why would?" I mean, here's a Buddhist monk. I mean, he's he's devoting his whole life to trying to be good. And yet, you could be a good idolater. Your, your idolatry is good. You are, de- you are trusting in goodness to be. You've, you've still rejected God as your source of life in some way. When you've, even if you've replaced him with, an, with a contrary God, or not a, I, don't, I don't want to say anti-God, but a, another God, which is the language of idolatry. So the Zegarot... I mean, you would think that these poor people making these the, the ziggurat in ba- Babel 
you know, the Tower of Babel. I mean, come on. What's wrong with what they're doing, man? They're trying to get to God. What's wrong with that? Well, they rejected God, the sovereign giver of all good things. And they relied upon that. What's wrong? Come on. Look what Cain did, Lord. Get over yourself. I mean, come on. I'm even bigger harder than that God. I mean, I, I mean, come on. Cain, he went out there and he did his, everything he could do to bring you his, his food. What, what could be so bad about that, God? Can't you just kind of loosen up a little bit? I mean, that, that's what I think is a perception of hell in God. But no, we got to go back to original sin, which is a horrible, dark concept that we have at some point, we, all of these sins, plural, however and whatever they're manifested, self-righteousness being one of them, we have to repent of our righteousness in order to come, you know, because we want to what? Believe and trust in God's righteousness. And all of these are subtle ways that we have. So for this child, you know, I, well, I, I want an iPad. And I said, well, come on, really? So you want an iPad and that's God sending you to hell for that? <laughs> you know? You know, and I was being gentle, I promise, guys. I'm not being so gentle right now. But but I was being very gentle, trying to help them, you know. And, you know, thank God. I mean, that's what we do this for. because the con- So that's the biggest issue that you just confronted there is hell. And there's a God. And, you know, and then you ask then the, bit, the other. There's always two. We, this is all going to come out, but I'll just say it. But there's always two. There's one that. But but you yeah but you got to keep working at it, exactly. keep working at it. But there, there's two categorical issues. One is what we just care. There's this God that just is not even as big as most decent humanists are. That our God is too small in love. But the other one is is what the the idea that there's no purpose. There there's no nothing good or there's nothing that that is purposeful even about hell. The the idea is there no, there's nothing good that comes with hell. No, this is the hardest one because what's the answer to that one, Josh? Uh, what was that, Romans 9? There you go. You're good. You're good, man. You're a theologian. You better watch it. So that's, it's true that there's going to be a sense in which um, God's going to be glorified. In God is going to be glorified yeah. by hell. Flourishing is the most important thing. That's right. That's hard. And that is freaking But that also tests the other thing, okay? Yeah. Let's go to number three. It's self right. Yeah, there's this version of self righteousness. There's a works righteousness. That question of them being good, if we ask that question back, is isn't he trying to be good? Isn't that what their ultimate thing is? So they believe they're not good. All right. Yep. Yep. The self righteousness. Good. So do you believe we have communion with those who are in heaven? Now, this was a tricky one. What do you think? Everybody's afraid. Not you. you let, come here. I'll get back to you. I promise. I like you. I just want to make sure everybody else gets a shot at it. Go ahead, Jim. So we're giving praise and glory to God, giving thanks to Christ corporately every Sunday when we talk about this all. What's going on in heaven at the same time? That's right. That's right. Hebrews, you know, that we, we, we have joined, we are now joining the festive gathering of heaven when we worship. So are we praying, do we pray to the saints in heaven? Do we pray to them? Are they in any way an advocate or, or, or a uh, mediator for us? No. Including Mary, right? In our position. Mary is, is a representative church member. She's not a representative, uh, savior. There's a very big difference. 
Um, and uh, but but can we have communion with the saints in heaven? There's a mystical thing here, though. But it's going to drive you back to kind of the sacramental idea of life that we believe that we have communion with God by the Holy Spirit. Now, is there a sense in which having communion with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit is communing with those who have communion with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit? That 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 the Christ by the Holy Spirit gives us a, is a bridge to those that that have passed. There's a sense in which they're communing. So for me to, I mean, there's just some metaphors here, and I don't know how else to say it because they're metaphors. But think about it. What happens? Well, I'll tell you what. So, so you guys are reminding me again. Joanne and, and Jim went to San Diego and were very gracious to take out my son. And they come back and and they're telling me about Nathan and how he looked and some other things. And am I communing with Nathan when they did that? I'm over there and I'm just feeling his presence through them. I'm feeling his, and you know that experience, right? When someone comes, oh, I spent time with your son. Oh, I spent time with your boyfriend. Oh, I spent, and all of a sudden you're talking, really, and you're talking, and you're talking, and it's as if there's a kind of connection, there's a union that this person's in your life mediated by this person in between you two in that moment. There's a mediatorial communion with the saints. We pray with the saints. Now, well, the cool thing about that is they are now glorified, as we're going to see. The saints are now glorified. So that's really a great ambition to get your theology straight when you pray. Because to the degree that we can agree in our prayers, we're praying together. To the degree that my prayers are in disconnect with the prayers of those in glory, we're not praying together. So my theology matters and my motives matter. And we pray for God's help then in prayers but there is a prayer which is in communion with the saints. And to the degree that we share in that prayer, we're praying together and sharing the same intent, same heart, same object, all that. So that's an interesting concept. And we're going to talk about grief a little bit. To the degree that we grieve, there is the, what do we do when we, when we partake of the, whole, of, of the communion? We are partaking of Christ in the mystery of the sacrament. We're remembering and when we remember Christ, we are communing with Christ, and the mystery of that memory is pretty powerful. It's bigger than just cognitive. Memory is a, you know, I don't know about you, but, but when I grieve, say, the loss of my father or the loss of something else, there are times, and I know Lisa's suffering from this with her mom this year, and others have suffered it this year with your son, and some of you who are suffering grief still, you know that there is this, there's something that goes very deep. It goes deep. It just takes your breath away even. It, it can literally take your breath away when you're, when you're grieving. A kind of, and it surprises you sometimes when it happens, right? If, so, if, if, if any of you have experienced that, this grief that comes from memory. And, I've, and one of the things we talk about when we do the death, you know, <laughs> that's horrible. How did it ever get to know, be known as the death seminar, Joanne? <laughs> Remember that? The death seminar. It's horrible. But we talk about death and dying. And, and, um, but there's a sense in which there's a memorial. So we talked about the mediatorial communion with the saints in heaven. There's a memorial communion with he- the saints in heaven when we remember them. And so what we're going to try to do is embrace grieving, to, to, per- to just to in- enjoy it even. When you, when you feel it coming on, don't stop. Just go, yeah, this is communion. I mean, I'm, I'm, and anytime you're communing with someone who's not in your physical presence, you long for the reunion of the full and whole communion. But it's the fact that you're tasting some communion that makes you long for the reunion of the full communion. 
So, you know, I'm, you know, there, there it is, you know. So when I'm praying for my children, I'm having communion with them in a certain sense, even if it makes me long to see them again. Okay, so... Yeah, that we just did a lot of theology there in our little round table. I didn't mean to take it so far. Let's let's turn to the uh, the handout, and we're going to walk through some things real quickly. And if someone, if also if you could open up your your Westminster, I'm going to put it up here as well. Um, so where I want to start though is in I've got a couple of handouts here I'm playing off of, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn to this one, but this is comes off the death seminar, and I just love this catechism. I think. Many of you know it. Um, can anybody read that from here, or do you want me to read it? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Let's all say it if you can see it. How about that? That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Moreover, that all things must work together for my salvation, and by his Holy Spirit, Christ also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily and willing and ready henceforth to live for him. You know, this is an amazing uh, catechism that we use in our service. And, uh, it, and, you, and if you think about Psalms 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You hear Axis Mundi? You hear what we talked about? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Um, what is it we believe that makes that true is the question of this, this class today. I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness, though, is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the dark is as light as we. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what is the what is the thesis of, of the, the catechism here and this psalm? What's the basic point? You can't get away from the Can't get away from God. There's an axis there's that axis. There is the the supernatural and the natural in Christ as a covenant person here. It's it's always there. There's always a connection. There's always union. It's an amazing thing. And um and so with that, let's go ahead and turn to our handout and look at now sort of the doctrine of the last things, I call them. So could someone read uh, section 32.1? This is from our confession. Here, I'll put that up too. Y'all, excuse me, I'm moving all this stuff around, I know. Actually, 32, not 31. What did I say, 32.1? 32.1? Yeah. Bodies of men after death, is this it? Yep. Return to dust and seek corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, subsistence, sorry, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So uh, things that really pop out at me, but I've obviously given the clue to it. But notice 
the word immediately. What, what doctrine do you think they are trying to prevent against? Purgatory. Okay. Perfect in holiness. What is that doctrine? Glorification. Yes, yeah, sanctification, glorification. Perfect. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. Exactly. This becomes glorification. So it's all done. That's what's so cool. Perfect in holiness. It's done. Salvation has been fully accomplished. And it's immediate upon our death, even as it says there's still a waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. So there you have the construct, more or less, for what we believe is a biblical doctrine of death. Um, uh, you know, here's some passages that we could look at. Um, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That's huge, by the way. That, that's, that's, a little, that's a snippet against Gnosticism. And, and many of the, not the pagan religions that viewed the flesh, as in the organic matter and all of that, the materiality of our lives, as the cause and the source of all evil. It's interesting, the Bible will use the flesh, but it will interpret it very intentionally. It uses that term a lot, you know, the flesh, the devil, you know. But the flesh is never, uh, it, it's not about the, the, the body, it, but it will use some of that language to try to correct that, that worldview of the first century to try to demonstrate that it's the sin nature. It's that it's that flesh of the sin nature that is the us divorced from the spirit. It's it's a contrast to being in the spirit, if you will. So the key thing here is that that yes, we're we're not waiting to get rid of of our flesh. We're actually waiting to be further clothed. That is our flesh restored. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Um, and that's the sense of what he's... And then the next thing here, for me to live as Christ dies gain, you know that. Um, so let's... let's uh, any, any questions about that? And we're, we're going to move pretty quickly here because I think it's pretty straightforward at this point. What do you think? Anything that strikes you about that? Y'all feel good about that? I mean, you feel good about it. Do you understand how it all works? No. <laughs> It, but do we understand what it's saying? Yeah, it's pretty clear. So let's read number two. Um, who would like to read that one? At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. All right, there we go. And so... Uh, you know, again, a classic here is 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet, which always is a symbol for the final judgment, will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Um, one more. For the Lord himself will descend. I'm sorry. There, get that thing. Okay. With a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, there's that trumpet again, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, one, notice up in the air with the clouds, there's an ascension. But then it doesn't tell you where they go after that. 
So don't, don't assume from this that now we just keep going into the stratosphere. Okay, there's, there's actually a reunion like, I think this is probably more metaphor, but there's a reunion of God coming and we greeting and reuniting, and then we're going to have to look at later where they're going to go. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute in the next chapter. So that's the key there that, that there's this two, you know, that, our, that we die, that our souls, our, our spirits go immediately to be with the Lord, where we are immediately perfected, our persons, our humanity, even as we await the reunion of body to spirit. And there's a whole lot that comes with that, that little concept there. Um, you know, uh, let me just kind of get in here with this. So again, the assembly understood the scriptures to teach that salvation is not from the body, but including the body, such that the ultimate form of salvation is when the soul and body are reunited, thus the doctrine of resurrection. That word, resurrection, is very crucial. Um, it is meant that the same body restored, not a different body. In other words, the key thing to observe here is the continuity between our body in this world and the next, which, by the way, the way you understand Christ's resurrection is going to inform, I mean, he's obviously described as the first fruit, the first resurrection. And therefore, whatever is true about his resurrection will be true for ours. Now, just stop and think about what we learn about the resurrection based upon the resurrection of Christ. What, what do you, just think about what you learn. What are you learning about here? What was, what, what was his resurrection like based on your knowledge of what happened when he was raised? He was recognizable, but what? He was recognizable, but it often ha- took a moment. There was something that had, you know, you, you can imagine. I mean, here's a pretty emaciated, beat up body that is now restored in its, in its original beauty or in glorified beauty, I should say. So you, you see people, you know, recognizing him, hearing his voice and going, oh, that's his voice. You see it when they're eating, and, and, and then he hands them the bread, and they look at his hands, and something goes, click, this really is Christ, and he's right here. So you can imagine, you know, if you imagine in your head what we see before a person dies, it's almost unimaginable what it would look like. I mean, I was just looking the other day, um, it's kind of sad, you know, I'm getting old, but, um, you know, there comes a point when you're aging, and some of us here know what I'm talking about. Where you really begin to see that our, 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 we look different. I mean, we, you know, you look at ourselves and you go, and, and you see that when you look at pictures of, of other people, like uh, movie stars, or, and you see a picture, and I don't know where it is. It, it, I don't, I'm afraid to put a, a time on it because we're all going to feel nervous about it. But whatever it is, you kind of look at this person, and I'm, I'm doing it, well, I'm in that stage right now. I look at people that I went to high school with, and I have a really hard time discerning them. I mean, and it's not just because they put a little weight on or something. It's just the cheekbones seem to have moved, and, the, and things are just different. Y'all, y'all are all, this is funny, we have five, seven, six of us here just going like this. But, you know, you go to Facebook and you see that, and it didn't happen until somewhere in the, I don't know, late 50s, 60s, I don't know. But, but it happens, and it just starts to happen. Now, to me, that's a metaphor, though. So now imagine that I encounter you with a glorified body. Um, there, it's going to be the same body, but it's going to take a moment. It's going to take a double take. But it is the same. Now, what, what does that mean if that's true? How does that... What is the, how does that relate this life to the next life now? 
continuity is huge. That was a real aha moment for me many years ago. To think that that this is the self-same body, the language of our confession, the self-same body, which means it will live where? Eternity. Yeah, it's going to be eternal. But where? Just use that frame. The self-same place. The resurrection of the body. Isn't that what, what Romans 8 says? That just as we groan for the redemption of our bodies, so heaven and earth, meaning the earth, the, the creation, all of creation, groans for the restoration of its body, its stuff. That, that was just a real aha. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why I'm going to argue later, as you'll see, for why we believe that the Scriptures teach that earth is heaven. It's a restored earth. I suspect it'll be in the same metaphor, though, that what we will, when I go to the, I will be able to go to the Long Island Sound. I don't even want to tempt you with this one. I know what you're thinking, Jim. You're going to be able to hike Mount Marcy or whatever, and, and you know, and, and it's going to be the same one. And you're going to go, God, remember that rock? Yes, I tripped on it back then. You know, think about the reality of that, though, that you're going to go to these places and to the degree, that, and, and we talked about this in, um, God, this has been such a great semester of teaching. I've loved teaching all these courses, but I can't remember which one they were. Um, what was it? Where was it when I was talking about, uh, what course is about taught as leader? What, what course was it that we were talking about, the fact that um, you, uh, oh, man, I'm blanking. Y'all even know where I'm going? Come on, y'all are supposed to read my mind right now. There was some. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm talk- what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that, that this earth will, there'll be a continuity in this earth in a way that I will be able to remember. Oh, I know what it was. It was in our 50-something class. And I asked the question, will we have regrets in heaven? And the idea is, well, will we remember in heaven? And and uh, Piper, um, you know, makes the point. I thought he made a great argument. I showed it on the line that we ha- heaven couldn't be heaven if there was not the memory of our life. And and then you ask the question: Will you remember all the suffering? And yeah, you remember it all, but you remember it all in a manner that it's all been redeemed. It's all been purposefully revealed. It's something that you will be able to see in the fullness of redemption. And will you have regrets? Sure, you'll have regrets, but regrets without self-condemnation. Imagine regrets. With it. So you'll look back and go, yeah, I regret that. And yet I regret it not in the sense that, that I, I'm depressed by it, not in the sense that it causes it, it. I regret in the sense that it directs me to the overarching grace and purpose of God that uses even regrets to restore me and put to death things that need to be put to death. So there's a sense in which this is blowing my mind. I hope it's blowing your mind. I start to get blown here because, honestly, I believe this idea, this concept of the self-same body and the nature and the, and the context of Christ's resurrection on earth, do you think Jesus remembered? I mean, was it like he just had a click and when he came back to earth, the resurrected return, if you will? It was, it? oh, I don't remember being killed here. Oh, I don't remember uh, the betrayals here. No, I think he'll re- he remembered them. And yet he remembered him now as a glorified body 
fully redeemed and perfected in a manner that makes all of that memory redeemed and perfected in, in judgment. And so this is really, a, a, when you start talking about the doctrine of resurrection and how that informs what we believe will be true about heaven, it's almost irrefutable. There are many other scriptures I'll point to, but it becomes very clear to me you know, that there is a real continuity and this impacts the way I grieve. You know, I've, I know I've shared the story of my son going to war, and I had this horrible dream. It was one of these moments. And I know I've shared it many times. It obviously had an indelible impact on my life, didn't it? I keep bringing it up, I guess. But, you know, but there was this, you know, just, just so visceral. I woke up so real. I didn't, you know, one of those times when you wake up and you don't know if it's a dream or not. You don't know if this is really something happening. And, and, um, and, and what really relieved me was this, what I am talking to you right now about. Self-same body, self-same earth, which really changed the perception of death with my, uh, of the potential of, you know, remember I told you that the aim in these sort of things is always to mock the devil. It's okay, let's face it. Let's look, let's go to the, let's go right there. Let's go right to the worst case scenario and let's find salvation there. Because if I can do that, it's take, it's neutered it. It's taken all the fear away from it. So you, so go ahead and face it. And we were doing that in, in Mui, I say me and God literally in the bed. And, um, and this is the doctrine. This is where it came. Self-same body, self-same earth, which meant that there was a real sense of memory that was not lost, that I would be able to one day share a whatever, a beer with my son in Long Island and remember the good old days and how they've now all been redeemed and that, and that at that moment, time will be as if it didn't even matter. So there is a current, immediate grief of separation that is experienced. For those in heaven, I have no, no awareness when you, when you, I mean, what would it mean? I'm just going to blow your mind a little bit here. But what would it mean that you're outside of body now? What would it mean that your body, the created matter, is still on earth, and you are now spirit with the Lord? Does the spirit experience time? Is there any passage of time in spirit? You know, this gets to the issue of sovereignty and decrees, and we, we talk about that But when we were on that doctrine. Well, what would it mean that God foreknew something? Was it that he acted, and, and when, it, when it breaks into time and space categories, that it becomes linear and chronological, but outside of time and space, it's, it's transcendent and unlinear? I mean, what, what is this? This is just blowing your brain. So this, this concept, I'm, I hope I just, I'll just stop here, but, but I'm trying to do the best I know how to impress upon you that this doctrine that we're talking about, don't yawn, <laughs> we are talking about something that will totally change your whole cosmology, your whole perception of life, the axis mundi, you know, the sacred, here it is, heaven touches earth, resurrection, body, spirit, we become the axis mundi. Heaven and earth touches us. And we are the, the, the totem pole where heaven and earth touches in the resurrection. What do you all think of that? I, are, are you blown? Do I need to say anything else? This is huge. Paul says about it, if there is no resurrection, yeah. hope is in vain. Absolutely. This is a big deal. And, and that's the point of the religion question I asked. Really, this whole thing that we're doing here, I mean, Grant... I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'd just be, you know, want to go do ethics or something, but I doubt it. That's pretty boring to me. What I'd really like to do is talk about heaven and hell as much as I can talk about it. 
And I want to know that every sermon has got that, got that behind it. Every, every class somewhere there's behind it. This is about heaven and hell. This is how big a deal this is. What a great job. What a great privilege as a Christian to do this. Every one of us is, is, is priest, the priesthood of believers. We're all partaking of this priestly thing of mediating God to man in this world. You know, and there's no bigger thing that we could do. And what's the irony about it is the world yawns. <laughs> I mean, we live in an era where that's all for, for children. Isn't it odd? I mean, you know, Jesus says, don't, don't hinder the children who are coming. But this stuff we're talking about, heaven and hell and religion, I mean, you know, when you get really grown up, and I know I feel this especially as a man, maybe you men know what I'm talking about, but, you know, get a real job, Preston. I mean, come on, you leave all the nursery schools and the ladies over the church. And I know that sounds sexist, and it is. But that's right. But that is. It is totally sexist. But that's the way a lot of men think. I'm just going to tell you that. It's like, come on, you know, when are you going to actually start playing with some money over here? You know, work with your hands, Pastor. I mean, come on, be a real man. You know, do something. But don't sit here and do all these. Well, see, this is the point. This, is, this changes everything for a Christian. It changes everything. So that's right. Paul's absolutely right. If this is that big of a deal. Uh, this is a big deal doctrine right here. <laughs> And that's why the church historically has had such a huge um, effort, made such a huge effort to keep directing us back to this doctrine and say, no, you take the historicity of Christ's resurrection away, you've taken away my religion. You've just taken it right away. I quit right now. I quit. Come on, Jim, let's go to that around next. But with the resurrection, I don't know if I'm ever going to quit. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And I think when we see the end of it, yeah, but, but even, I, I don't know, I don't know the answer, <laughs> but I think it, it makes at least cognitive sense that when I see the end of that pain, that it put to death that which was destroying me and it brought, it, it's, it's, it's maybe akin to the the what you know seeing a rotten seed in the ground that becomes new new life what was rotting on earth became new life and i'll see the end of it and i'll say wow it was a painful thing for my arm to to rot off you know what you know metaphorically but what an amazing plant that came up because of it 
And so we'll, I think it's that we'll see the – remember, we believe that there is no – in God's sovereign plan, redemption, there is no such thing as purposeless suffering or, or ultimate bad suffering. Even hell itself, we must always hate hell. We must always hate sin. But the mystery of the salvation is that even sin and hell function in a purposeful manner that will ultimately glorify God and result in our salvation. And where would we turn to prove that, by the way? Where would you go in Scripture to prove that? Don't look for a proof text. Look for a story. Where would you prove that? The ultimate story of all stories? Isn't that the cross? I mean, where was sin more dark and ugly? Where was suffering more cruel and horrifying? And where was salvation more powerful and beautiful? So when you look at the cross, it puts that into perspective. I, I want to remember the cross even as I regret it. When I'm in heaven, I will remember the cross and it will, whatever it will do to me, I think is the paradigm that I will then look at the crosses that God decreed for my life that allowed me to die that I might be raised up. Uh, that's the p- theological paradigm now. You're right. The emotional stuff, it's hard to know what that emotion will feel like. Although I think it'll, it'll be commensurate with joy because heaven is a place of joy. Is, is it part of the sanctification process to that mean? Yep, that's part of it, yeah. That's right. Mortification, you know, death, rise. I mean, it's, it's always the paradigm. We died to be raised. Baptism. Resurrection go hand in hand. We're going to hear about that this, this Sunday. The idea that you you must die and then be born and raised up, and that's life. That the early Christian church used baptism as a paradigm for what the Christian life should look like: death and rising. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And see what you just described, Annie, is, is that's what, what do you, that's exactly what Paul's saying. Oh, death, where's your sting? There's going to be a lot of business left undone when we die. No doubt about it. Things that we don't know. People have not converted that we're praying that will convert. There'll be all kinds of stories that are incomplete stories, like the one you just shared. Lack of reconciliation, maybe. And it really does set you free. I mean, I'm really, I think this is a really big deal. I mean, for me, even with, uh, I mean, Lisa knows a couple of years ago I had a little situation where I was doing this with, with our family a little bit, but just, you know, it's not the end of the world that, we, that everything doesn't get worked out before I die. It'll get worked out in heaven. I mean, the same thing you said. I'm, and so I'm not going to make my decisions based on what will get everything right before I die. I want to make decisions based on what will get us to heaven together. That's a very different thing. I mean, if you think about it, the world is obsessed with death. And, and, and the obsession comes in one of two forms. We're either death-denying, we just do not talk about it. We don't even want to use the word death, you know. We use all these other cliches for it. We don't want to touch it. But that's obsession. That's, that's an anti-obsession. Or we're just talking about it all the time, thinking about it all the time. And what Paul would want us to do is take the sting of death, this obsessiveness. Death is really not that big a deal anymore. Theologically speaking. Now, I'm not being insensitive to the emotions of death. 
We should grieve death, okay? Don't hear me. Grieve, death should be grieved. Every time I've done a sermon, I mean a funeral, I think you would know if you've been here and been to those, I've tried very hard to first affirm the grief, that this something's wrong here. This wasn't supposed to be the way it happened. Love does not flourish with separation. Love just demands communion. There's something about love and union that just go right together, and you can't. The thought of separation is horrifying in love. Love just doesn't, just antithetical love. So something's wrong here, but we don't. So the interesting thing is that Thessalonians says, I'm, I'm going to, you know, four, what does he say? He says, I, I tell you these things, and he says that you might not grieve as others grieve. That's a really curious statement because it's not saying, I'm, I'm telling you this so you don't grieve. It's saying you're not going to grieve the same way. You're going to grieve with hope. And that's, that's huge. That's really huge. But I would give anything to set all of us free from Scripture, from the, the fear of death so much. It, 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 is, it is bad, you know, we, you know, but it's not that bad. I don't know how to say it. It's not the end of the world because the world goes on. Continuity, self-same body, self-same earth, reunion, hugs. It's all going to happen. Eating food together. I mean, that just does miracles for me when I think about this. But, you know, I'm going to be eating food with these folks. Now, let's move on. That was number three, by the way. <laughs> See all that stuff about three? It's, I say it's very significant. Well, I hope we, we're feeling that now. Um, Isaiah 65, 17, and Romans uh, 8, 21, um, this idea of new, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. You should know that, that the word new, there's two words in the Greek, and there's two Hebrew words for the word new. One could be the new, you remember the wineskins analogy and that, that, that you don't put an old and a new? Well, one is the idea is a wineskin, if it's a brand new, it hasn't shrunk, right? I mean, it hasn't stretched. So you can't put good wine that's very you know alcoholic into this thing that's going to blow it up. It's not limber. So a restored or renewed, or do we mean created? And so the idea of a recreation, think about what salvation is. It's a recreation event. That means a restoring recreation. It's not a, we're born again, but it's we were already born, so there's an again to it. And so this is the idea um, so very briefly, I'm not going to, if you want to talk about it, you can, what are the, what is the argument, if you will, for, cause I mean, again, I'll say this one more time. I, I, of all the questions of religion, we need to get this one resolved. Do we believe in heaven? And I promise you, some of you are younger, some of you are older, I don't care where you are. This question is maybe the biggest question you need to get resolved other than do I believe in God? Do I believe in heaven? And is this heaven something that you really can live for and die for? And this is my attempt to say, yes, I do. Yes, you do. Uh, as our confession, as I've read scripture. Notice the argument goes like this. The created heavens and earth are called good in and of themselves according to scripture. God saw that it was good. Um, the curse upon the earth, not the earth itself, that it is the curse. Notice. So if something is God created everything good, Nothing is to be rejected. It just starts the argument. Would God then make a life, a world, 
that lacks that good. Earth, materiality, is good. Heaven is good. Number two, land. Don't, don't underestimate. I know that we live in a, in, a, in a New Testament, Old Testament world. We know that the land, the geopolitical stuff was all typological, but there's another way to think of it. And another word that's often used, not typological, foreshadowing. And in that sense, the obsession of, of having a piece of land that was God's presence in that land, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, it is not altogether, it, while we believe, it's, we will say it's now spiritual, what we're not saying by spiritual is that it's not physical. Kevin and I talked about this, uh, or who was it that did the Sermon on Zion recently? Oh, it was uh, uh, Andrew, I think it was. And we were having this conversation about Zion and is it a place. And, and see, we were going to want to say yes and yes and no and no. I mean, so, so there, it, it gets complicated because what makes Zion Zion clearly is the presence of God. God makes Zion Zion. The temple is the temple because God makes it the temple. Christ is is the temple because God is in the flesh of Christ. Christ is God, but God in the flesh, so he becomes a temple. So what is Zion? What is the promised land? See, I'm going to say Zion is heaven. Heaven is defined by the very presence of God, but it's not anti-matter. It's not anti-place. It's, it's both place place that is divinized, if I may use that Greek term, or partaking of the divine nature. So, so the idea here is that we believe that, that this heaven um, is a land precisely because all, throughout all redemptive history, we see this emphasis on a promised land. And the land that in Hebrews we, we know is, is really longing for heaven, but it doesn't mean heaven lacks ground or dirt. It means that heaven is spiritualized by the Holy Spirit. God is in the midst of us, and therefore earth becomes heaven. Isn't it odd that all the, 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 so often the phrase on earth as it is in heaven shows up in both Old and New Testament? How should we pray? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is on heaven. That's the goal that we're praying for, on earth. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? He's, what do you pray for? On earth. We believe it's in the kingdom. He's praying for the kingdom of God to come, right? And what do we believe in our eschatology? That it's now and not yet. It's now, but not yet fully consummated. We're waiting for the return of Christ for that to happen. So it's both. I think there's a heaven on earth every time we meet in church, in the temple of church of God, where he is in the midst of us in a unique and, and spiritual, though, way. So, but, but it's not yet the full and consummate heaven, that the whole earth is going to be the temple one day, as we read about in Revelations. The whole earth will be church. And it'll be a better church than this because we're going to be able to fish while we're at church. That'll be cool. Okay? So this is really cool stuff. Um, the prophetic expectations. Uh, again, I mentioned Isaiah, the old and the new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. I turn that because that's a passage which a lot of people will turn to and say, oh, there it is. See, it's different. No. Well, let's don't lose the fact that it's heaven and earth. Even if, Let's just forget about the word new. I'm going to do that word study in a minute. But new, heaven, and 
earth. And don't think of the heavens as being immaterial. The heavens, ordinarily in Scripture, is referencing the skies. Go to Genesis, where the stars are in heaven. That's, that's a material heaven, right? You got it? Air, you know, whatever the stuff is, it's there. Even black holes is matter. And the weird thing about black holes. And so, yeah, we have these Canaan words and Neos words, and they are a little different, and you need to go back and look at that. I won't have time to do it. Let's see, we've got about 10 minutes. Um, I'm not going to read the Meredith Klein uh, sort of things. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, skip over that part right there. Um, any questions about this before I get going here? We got to do hell. So let's read uh, section three. There we are. Someone read that one. The bodies. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just, by his spirit, unto honor, and be made comfortable to his own glorious, I'm sorry, conformable to his own glorious body. There you go. Now what, do you, what sticks out at you there? Somebody? Is is raised to this? Yeah, good. So you're already you're getting to where I was going. Is this the difference? Is the difference here, according to our consensus, and we'll have to go to scripture, is the difference that some will go to heaven and some will be destroyed? No, dishonor is a different word, isn't it? No, is it is it that some are going to be raised and others are not going to be raised? No. There is a resurrection. Everyone will have it. Some will be raised unto dishonor, or, you know, we're going to look at that. And then others will be raised by the Spirit in honor and will receive the glorious body. Now, what what are we talking about here? This is the confession's way of against annihilationism, the doctrine that believes that, that hell defining hell as metaphorical of the the lack of existence anymore. We believe the scripture everywhere wants to teach that humanity is eternal. The soul is eternal. It never goes out. It's it's a fire that never stops. You know, the soul is eternal. So it begs the question then, well what then is hell? What is hell? Well whatever hell isn't, it's not nothingness. It is, it is another place, if you will. Now, that raises a lot of questions to me. And I'm going to be honest, I don't, where is that place? <laughs> you know, I don't know. The scripture is really vague about that, from what I can tell. Or maybe I'm in for another aha moment somewhere later in my years. But right now, I don't know. But let's read it a little bit more. So God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of all their thoughts, words, and deeds, and receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, does that sound like a works righteousness statement? Yeah. We are going to be judged by our works. Let's get that straight. Now, either, and and we're going to all be judged not guilty. I mean, guilty, if you're understanding the logic here. Now what happens? 
we cry mercy. Have we cried mercy? God, have mercy upon me. In Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. His, our works are imputed upon Christ on the cross. His righteousness and works is imputed to us, wherein we are judged not guilty and righteous. As Christ is judged on the cross as guilty and unrighteous. But there is a judgment of works. Even if our works become Christ's works by virtue of that transaction of substitutionary atonement. We've talked about that a lot. That's why this doctrine of imputation and justification is so important. Because justification is not the doctrine that we must just that our works will justify us. Justification is doctrine that Christ's works will justify us. But they're still works. The covenant of works that was made with humanity and the ultimate work, of course, of what? Trusting and, and, and putting ourselves in God's care. That the doctrine is of co- the covenant of works of creation is still intact. And we're going to be judged based on that creation purpose. And we will be judged by our works in Christ, transferred as not guilty. Because now our works are Christ's works imputed to us. Substitutionary atonement. Um, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy. Here's your, your chapter 9, um, Josh. In the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive their fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction. Notice this language, though. From the presence of the Lord. That is the definition of hell. This is really important. And I'm going to give you a lot of scripture in your handout. If we don't get to read it here, okay. But, but this is, a, the more I've worked through the redemptive history of God in, in, in the Old and New Testament, it's amazing how consistent it is. Over and over, Old Testament and New, I think of Judges. The whole book of Judges, I think eight times, is a sequence of stories that begin with, Remember the four S's, right? You know, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. Well, the servitude part is always introduced with, and God delivered them over to. And, and, and it's a sense of, it's what we call excommunication. That God sent them out to what they had chosen, gave them over to what they chose, which was anti-God. That's the key. Hell is that place that we chose, what we wanted. What we wanted, he gives us. It's our sin that we love that destroys us, according to 1 Timothy 3. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. It's what we love that destroys us. You know, read Romans 1 three times. Delivered them over to, delivered them over to, delivered them over to. That's the idea. In Ezekiel, there's this prophetic, what we call it, a prophetic enactment. And there's this moment when God is trying to, to warn Israel of what they are choosing and that what they are choosing will destroy them. And the way that he did it is he builds a great wall between them and the prophet Ezekiel. A prophet Ezekiel represents the very presence of God by his word. And the people could not get access to Ezekiel anymore. See, they were excommunicated from the word of God as an enactment, a dramatic enactment of you are, go, you are to being declared 
in hell except that you would repent and turn away from what you've chosen, which in their case was Babylon, and make God their God. You see, that's, that's the story of hell. So, so how do you see that? Look at all these passages here that I put in here. Yeah, go ahead. What? Say again. Well, yeah, I think you're talking about, let me see what you're talking about here. Yeah, everlasting destruction. Yeah, I, I think destruction of life. Um, I don't see that. I mean, obviously, they just told you that they lived <laughs> and got raised. Um, so, yeah, everlasting destruction as in destruction of life. I mean, they're using judgment words here, basically. But good question. Now, notice the, the, re, the inter, you know, we say this phrase a lot, you know, here, to be saved is, to be warned is to be half saved. It's interesting that confession number three makes the case that, that the more we talk about this, don't, don't, don't veer away from this. Let's, let's, let's be honest about this because it is a deterrent. If, if we could help our world take this seriously, remember what all religion's about? Heaven and hell, really. If we can convince the world this is real, but we need to get much better at this. Because I don't, again, I, I think we need to, to avoid these descriptions of hell which make God out to be a tormentor in the proactive sense. It's God delivering us over to what we choose, what we love. I mean, I, I just, that, that old Mad Max movies, you know, and there's a new one out. I mean, I, I kind of like Mad Max movies. I don't know about you guys. But there's something really eschatological about those. They are. They really got some deep stuff going on there. Lisa, saw, I went one the other day, and she said, I'm, I've been wanting to see this new one for a while, and Lisa wasn't going to see it with me. So finally she, okay, this is your night. You can do it. What'd you do? You went somewhere, I forgot, in the house. She said, okay, I'll let you go see this because I'm not going to see it. And it's a great movie, man. It actually done it for all. Anyway, that's another thing. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But anyway, I'm not trying. The point being, that's what I envision hell being like. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that would be reading into that, though, I think. I mean, that, that doesn't, all of death is, I mean, think about it. Death is separation from God in, in this narrative. And the lake of, you know, these apocalyptic images, of course, are meant to depict this, this horrible reality. That's the point of it. It's, to, it's, it's apocalyptic. Y'all make sure you come for the uh, Bible interp class when I do Genesis. Uh, I'll be doing that one. We're, you know, that's probably the next one I'm doing, I think. But, but when we do the word, no, I think it's two times, way later. But anyway, when we do Genesis and apocalyptic literature, it's going to be very important because the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to awaken people. It's to, be, it's to do something that, that, that awakens you. It's meant to be very dramatic, and, um, and it is. And, uh, you know, and so I think what you see there, the second death, of course, being the second judgment. We've died, the first death. The second and final death is the judgment into hell. That's all that is. Death is the curse, remember. So, um, 
Yeah, so there's that. Let me let me get you some passages here, and then we'll see if you want to just, we'll have to just stop at that. Notice all these passages I give you that just make it clear that if there's a resurrection of condemnation right there in John 5, 28. What is a resurrection of condemnation? Except a life that is lived under the curse of being condemned guilty. Um, you know, and so to, for those who've tried to make Scripture say there is no hell, it's a really hard argument. It, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, what would be the urgency? What would even be the purpose? You know, the, the sense of urgency of writing a book like Revelations if it weren't for the fact there's a real consequence. It, I mean, it even means that your life wouldn't matter anymore. I mean, it's just horrifying in, in an odd sort of way. What, I don't know which is more horrifying because what would it mean? Right now, I believe that my decisions matter, that my work matters, that choosing God matters. If you take away hell, none of it matters anymore. We're just a bunch of stimulus response mechanistic people, if you understand what I'm saying. Just, just, we're no more than animals. It wouldn't matter. You know, just just live on the immediate moment, you know, and just doesn't matter because I'm going to be I'm going to be in heaven one day. So, I mean, if I really believe there was no hell, I would become a hedonist, I think. I just say, what what the heck? Let's just go ahead and do whatever I want to do now. It's not going to matter anyway. Now, I could make some arguments against that hedonism, I guess, that are more ethical arguments, i.e., if we could define that sin is and we would will define sin as being anti-life then I would try to make a point or case that, hey, to do sin is not really to find happiness anyway. So the hedonistic argument is flawed because it attributes things that are inherently uh, toxic to life as living. So, yeah, there might be an immediate drunken moment, but the hangover and a life that is a hangover is not a good life compared to the life that's vibrant and fresh without being in and, and alcoholic stupors, right? So we can make a case, maybe, for doing good without heaven and hell, but it takes a huge punch. If re- So there's something, I, I think we need to do as a Christian do a better job here of asking, you know, this is what Francis Schaeffer was great at. We talked about taking the roof off. And he would he would push people to the conclusions of their presuppositions. And I think one way I would talk to people about hell, Josh, is, is say, well, okay, let's just let's just for the moment presume that that's true, that, that life, that there is no heaven and hell. So why does your life matter now? What, what, what is your consequences? What, what, what would that mean? You know, what, is it, what does it say about our, our will and our freedom? Are we really free anymore if there's not real consequences to our choices? I mean, there's a whole horrifying thing of this that starts to fall out. If you don't have this narrative in the Bible, which make the whole narrative, starting with Genesis, is a narrative of it matters what you do in this life for eternity. It matters. And so I think, that, you know, you see these scriptures and you can read them yourself. They're all here. Um, and I won't go. I'm looking to here to see if there's anything I just want to point out. I hope that you'll you'll go through um, and read these last th- these scriptures on hell, because uh, there's a lot of them that I put in here. Um. All right, let's stop there. We're, we're out of time. Any questions? Just you're dying to make you. Just a quick one. This might be something simple. I'm not sure, but if is, I'm not sure, is God by definition omnipresent? Yep. So now you're going to hell. I know. Okay. Yeah. 
So how you're going to, how you going to deal with that? It says there uh, they have no there's no presence of the Lord in hell. There's separation from God. God is not present there in the sense that God is not, there's no redeeming presence of God in hell. Now, I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know how else to go there besides what I just said. It's a good question. Is there a presence that's not redeeming? Is there just the absence of all presence? What are you going to say? I, I seem to remember a Puritan quote that said something like, heaven is being eternally in the presence of God with a mediator. Hell is being eternally in the presence of God yeah. without yeah. Well, that would make sense, but I'm also trying to deal with the idea that there is a category. Yeah. So he's he's if, but in what sense is God in hell? Maybe to sustain it as hell. <laughs> but I think we don't see the picture that hell is God zapping you with a current of electricity every three seconds. That's the point. I think um, it's not a God inflicting. Well, every. Well, so there's a there's a there's a let's just call it a redeeming presence. It's hell is outside of the redeeming presence of God. Um, and then this probably as far as I know to go, there, there's a real sense, though, in the scriptures speaks of, of hell as being absent the presence of God in the sense of God's. Yeah, but maybe that's the qualifier. So I beg, I beg some ignorance here. You got me. Good question. No, it's a great question, but I think that's how I would do it. Yes. So, trying to kind of reconcile the last judgment. Um, you know, knowing our actions matter, and that we end up having to account for our thoughts, words, and deeds, both the saved and the unsaved in this. But, but there's also the separation of our sins as far as the east and the west and the cleanse, you know, the, our, the wash of white as snow with the crimson blood of Jesus. And yep. so I guess I'm wondering sort of how to reconcile in some ways the completely cleansed slate and yet there is this memory, uh, this accountability and uh, almost a... Well, but, but that's part of the purifying. That's part of the purifying, I would say. The judgment is the purifying event. Um, all our sins are made, are 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 cauterized or are, are burnt up in the hell that that came upon Christ. So our sins are again in a legal sense are imputed to Christ, wherein they the the language of atonement you know is the word propitiation in Scripture, and that word means satisfy. So the idea in the Scripture over and over is that the wrath of God gets satisfied. It's almost as if it, it you think of a fire that dis, that is that is wanting to burn everything and it's and you could call the fire satisfied when you get to the you have these nice little smoldering coals. It's calm, it's quiet, it's now the fire satisfied. So there's this image there of the you know of the uh sacrificial system where the blood uh, and the carcass, every bit of it would get consumed with the fire. And it was, and so the word propitiation is is this image of the fire consuming the sacrifice in a manner that the fire finally lost its its vigor. It 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 it, go, it meanders down to mere coals at best. You see what I mean? Ashes, literally. Yeah, so I guess 
So I, that's what I'm trying to say. So when I, am, when I meet the Lord and all of my sins will be, you know, judged in the cross of Christ as having been ex- extinguished by the fire of God's wrath upon Christ on my behalf. Yeah, maybe I missed your question. Like, uh, upon repentance, forgiveness is immediate, and yet it just seems like all that still is hanging out there until this day where it's, it, so it doesn't feel immediate. It feels like okay, it's I see what you're saying. There's where I'd, I'd probably go to the now, not yet paradigm. We are now forgiven, even as we await our final judgment for that forgiveness to be executed upon Christ fully and, and completely. So it's... Do what? Say that again. That feels weird for the now, not yet, to still be true once we have died and been perfected. Well, no, I, I'm not saying that once we've died and been perfected that there's a now, not yet. But isn't what you're saying? Like, no, no, what I'm saying, final yeah. Final judgment of all of our deeds being come back up is not at death, is at the end of it. Yeah. So why is... Well, when you say all of our deeds come up, I, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of a legal transaction, one where... I mean, I don't know. This is hypothetical. Uh, I believe my sins, all my sins are forgiven right now. Let's make that really clear. I'm not waiting for them to be forgiven. This, my sins are now forgiven. Okay, let's get that one just straight off. However we deal with that, I'm not trying to say that. And I think it's my sins are right now in Christ, right now, past, present, and future are now forgiven based on the once and for all transaction wherein my sins were placed upon that cross 2,000 years ago and made atonement for my sins. That's very important. It's a past event, past tense. I can say my sins are forgiven, as in past. Okay? What we're talking about is that judgment, all of my life will be judged, and it will be judged as the works will be judged in Christ on that day. So the final judgment will be not guilty. So I'm not waiting to go to heaven and hear my guilty plea. I'm going to, go to, he- I'm going to meet the Lord in judgment, and I'm going to hear not guilty in Christ. You see? So it's a legal, think it legally, not as a sense that, that um, I'm sitting here waiting to be forgiven. It's already forgiven. It's declarative. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. There will be some works that will not pass through the fire, though I will. And there'll be some works that will. So there's another sense of judgment in that regard, isn't there? But but again, just keep these these aren't these aren't disconnect. You know, in other words, I can be I can be declared not guilty in Christ, and that doesn't mean that all of my works are going to be, you know, uh, accepted in heaven. As, you know, whatever that is about the stuff worked on hay and stubble versus, you know, the rock of Christ or whatever, you know, just keep those separate, I think, is my point. My status with God is not guilty now, and it will be when I face his judgment. Though, though, but it's not as though God is going to say, oh, you, you lived a perfect and sinless life, either. It's going to be, you, you, you were guilty on many counts, all of which have been propitiated for, satisfied as having already been. Man, I could be getting some bad theology here. But maybe it's the concept of double jeopardy or something. You know, I mean, there's a sense in which I can say, 
I've already been punished. There is no punishment left for me. Because Christ was punished for me. So the punishment has been exhausted. The wrath has been exhausted. Um, that will be the ju- so judgment will be a gorgeous and wonderful day for me. It'll be the day I'm looking forward to the judgment when I can see all, when I will be declared righteous and entered into heaven. But it will not be a judgment wherein I'm going to be exalted for all of my works. It'll be a judgment where Christ is exalted for His works, and we all glory in that. And yet there's another kind of judgment where, as Paul alludes to, it seems that, that there, will be, there will be certain things that will... And the way I like to think of it, remember we talked about the continuity between this life and the next. But perhaps, and I, this is my, my leaning at this point, I would interpret Corinthians 3 there to mean that, that, that there is a continuity on this earth in the next. And there will be things I'm doing on this earth that will somehow be reflected in heaven. Now, be careful... Because there's a millennial view of eschatology that believes that, that, you know, in some ways, by our human works, we can make heaven. We can't. Heaven is a supernatural event that only God can do, just like the resurrection. All right? So I'm not going to try to get into this humanism where, I mean, there's a lot of this that gets attached to social justice and uh, uh, environmentalism and all of this stuff where it's like, yeah, we're actually participating in the building of heaven here. Well, there's a sense in which maybe there will be some continuity between what I do here in heaven, but believe me, heaven is a cataclysmic event of a supernatural nature that only God can do, just like the resurrection is. All right, we've we got to stop here. Read through some of the rest of this stuff. We didn't get through some of it, but hey, listen, what a great class I've had with you guys. Thank you. Good job. Clap for you guys. And uh, y'all, and, uh, I hope we can continue. And, and again, I'm serious. We might want to think about a... Would anybody here be interested in a readings, uh, little re- a historical theology readings course? Yes, sir. I mean, we've got it. We've got that set up. We could re- re- revive that. It's, I don't know if something you'd want to think about, but we'll we'll, we'll think about. It. How, how many of you don't don't do this just to please me, really? Because I'm not saying I'm not gonna, I'm going to even do it. But how many people here would really want to do something like that? Perhaps uh, what I call a historical theology class, where what we do is read. We would take a, a samples throughout redemptive history. We would take each of these categories. But we'd take a sample, like we'd read Augustine on, on you know, free will. Or we'd read, you know, and we'd read these little snippets, you know, of, of, of historical moments when these doctrines were wrestled with. And, so you take a topic, like free will, and say, what did Augustine say about this? Yeah, and I would choose someone who's, who, was, who had a significant contribution in that in, in church history. So by the time we're through, you would be reading everyone from Cyprian to Augustine to... Luther to Calvin to 19th century theologians, Scottish theologians, all kinds of folks. Just trying to give you a little bit of a taste of church history, but theologically. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. No, what, what it would require, what it would require, it's a readings course. So what it would require is that you would read and you would come in. I would not be teaching. I would not have these handouts this would truly be a reading club kind of a thing where I would come in and we would just have Calvin in front of us and our Bibles, and that'd be it. That's all we could be doing. It, it wouldn't be sitting here like this with all this sort of stuff. It would truly just be let's, let's have fun trying to explore some of these great you know, uh, historical works. The great, it's kind of a great books curriculum, if you will, but it's more in the form of a great essays because we can't read full books in a week. 
or two. And we could also do it where we could do it over a period of a year that's every every month, once a month. And just, just you know, in other words, the, the urgency of getting you through a curriculum is not as significant because this is the curriculum that you needed to take in order to also get your degree and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about. But um, so, hey, by the way, if you have, I see that thing never even got started, did it? Oh, good. Did it get around to these guys? Awesome. So you take responsibility for going online and catching up where you need to um, because we would like for you, you know, with your integrity to remember. And if you have questions, you can ask me and or, or set up a meeting with me or any of the pastors and just engage that issue. Um, for those who are taking the class for credit for something. That's right. For credit for the school of discipleship, to be a teacher, to be a WLB session, all of that. This is a prerequisite to being significant leaders, different types of leaders in the church. Remember that. This is sort of our core course. So not to, you know, don't let me take all the fun out of it when I say all that. (laughs) Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this group and for the fellowship we've had together through this course. And I know I'll miss them in this environment. And I pray that we will miss each other in this environment because we've seen your presence and felt your presence in these discussions. And ask God that you'll bless each one of these uh, these who are your confessing theologians, who are seeking to know you and to know your, your, the faith that you have passed down through the years uh, that come dire- directly from you by revelation. And so, Father, uh, just help us to be wise as we appropriate these doctrines in a way that is gospel-centered and gracious and in a manner that would glorify you. And we do pray at the very end that that whatever else happens because of this, it would not puff up. It would not do. It would not be itself our righteousness. Uh, we we repent of theology righteousness right now, uh, Lord. We we trust only in Christ and in His righteousness, and pray that You will be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. In His name, we pray. Amen. Amen.